0: Father, we declare that truth over our lives, that it's not about what other people say about us. It's not even about what we say about us. It's about what you have said about us. And in you, we are forgiven. In you, are, we are loved. In you, we have a future and a hope. In you, we are a child of the Most High God. You are preparing a place for us beyond our comprehension. And so I pray that we would sing that over our lives. When we are crushed, we would realize that you have mended us, you have healed us. When we are down, feeling like a failure, we pray that we would realize that you have raised us up and that you have seated us in the heavenly place with Jesus. I love singing truth. Father, we we pray that this gathering would bring glory to you. Spirit, we ask that you would now just run, have your way in this place, in our hearts. And Jesus, may you be lifted high. And may we draw our attention our mind, our heart. May, may we draw it to your glory, your lordship in our life. Will, will we surrender uh, this, this, this moment and go, Jesus, will you teach us something about our faith in you? that actually would would shape us and mold us more into your image, that we might reflect your glory more in every sphere of our life, that we might be the salt and light that you have called us to be in this world. And it's all anchored in who you say we are because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. We worship you as king, and it's in your name we pray. All God's people said? All right, you may be seated, Northland. Love you. Oh, my goodness. I love you. Like love you. I hope you never get tired of me saying that. But I do deeply, deeply love you. And uh, man, I'm, I'm about to preach. All right. I hope you came. Like, you better put your big big boy pants on, your big girl pants on. We're we going we to dive in deep, y'all. <laughs> Anyways, that sounded like I was from the South. I am, I am. Hey, all right, so go ahead and turn with me, or you can turn on your Bible to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Let me welcome again all of those who are engaging with us online. Uh, I'm grateful that you are tuning in. Now, we are in this series that we started on Easter Sunday, which was incredible, by the way. Yeah, it was unbelievable. But we started a series called Transitions. Now, I really felt the Lord leading me to this series actually for the next several months. I normally do not do a series this long, but I just believe it's where we are. And for two main reasons, I believe that we all experience transition right now, my family, myself, myself. We are going through a transition, trying to get from Wheaton to here. Maybe many of you, you are in a season of transition. I believe culturally, we are in a season of transition. Uh, author, writer David Brooks, over a year ago, wrote about the fact that America is going through a cultural convulsion and has done so for uh, the uh, for a period of sixty years, so every sixty years, America tends to go through a cultural convulsion. So right now, as a culture, we are going through a lot of changes culturally. And here's what I even want to help us process through this, through this series is how we process even the cultural changes that are happening. Because church, if we cannot process the cultural changes that are happening, we are going to become irrelevant in reaching a culture that is growing more secular and more progressive. And so we're, we're gonna have to process those changes, we're gonna have to process that transition. And then second of all is Northam. We, we've been a church in transition for the last several years and we are a church now entering into a transition. You go, oh, how so is that? You got a new pastor. Yay! <laughs> you, <know. laughs> so, you, you got an arranged marriage. You, you didn't vote on me? Uh, God voted on me. I answered the call to come here, but you're going to have to learn me. I'm going to have to learn you. So it's this arranged marriage, and so we're going to we have to figure out the dynamics, and we're going to have to process that. And so I want us to learn to navigate transitions well. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about there's a difference between change and transition. Change is situational, transition is psychological. Hey, did you see the little teaser that I, that we put out on Friday, me having a little hand warmer? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but that's a little hand warmer. So in, in colder climates, we typically take out hand warmers to warm our little hands. That's an example of a psychological process in terms of a transition, is that I went from a warm climate having spent Three weeks down here, went back to a colder climate, and as I'm sitting outside watching a track meet and a baseball game, I need to pull out a hand warmer. So that, that's an example of, of the psychological p- process of a transition. Now, last week, Pastor Rob tackled Abraham. Now, I was thinking a little bit more about Abraham. You know, so, so God comes to Abraham and tells him to leave his homeland, his family, his culture, and go to a place that he will show him. Now, in every transition, there is an ending there is a neutral zone, which is where you're processing the ending and you're processing the new beginning. So the ending, the neutral zone and the new beginning. So just in, you know, Abraham want you to think about this in the Bible. It talks about how Abraham is the poster child of faith. Now, why would he be the poster child of faith? Because he had to process this invitation that God was giving him to, to make his name great to make his family great, to turn him into a nation that would bring worldwide blessing, But in that transition, there there had to be a death in Abraham. He had to die to his religion. He had to die to his family. He had to die to his region, his culture, his friends, his security, his comfort, and his control. He had to die to those things. Those things ended, and he had to process that end, but he also had to process the God of new beginnings. What God was calling him to, who God was calling him to be. Now, there's five options that we all have when we face the changes and enter into a process of the transition. We can stop it, we can just survive it, we can get stuck in it, we can merely function, or we can flourish. Now, the difference between the first four options and the fifth option has has to do with our core processor. And that's what we tried to talk about at Easter is that when Adam and Eve sinned, They damage the core processor in our lives of how we process seasons of change. And that's the reason why every transition yields a transformation. And if you are processing transitions according to mode 1 through 4, you are being conformed more into the image of Adam. But see, Jesus came to redeem us. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to save us. And, and part of saving us, he has repaired that core processor of how we process change in our life. And so now every transition, we can be transformed more into the image of Jesus, So one of the things that I'm praying as we enter into this transition process of me becoming the pastor and you becoming the congregation under my leadership is that this transition, we would be transformed more into the image of Jesus, not the image of Adam. Because if you look at churches and how they process the changes that are happening, they typically want to fall into the default mode of being conformed more into the image of Adam, which is why you have a lot of infighting. All right? Okay, okay. So, so that's why every transition yields a transformation. But who are you being transformed into, Adam or Jesus? Now, now, with that said, I'm not going to do catch-up every week like I just did. So, so this morning, here's what I want to talk about for the remainder of our time. I want to talk about a crisis of faith. Everybody say crisis of faith. All right. There's times in our life where we will experience a crisis of faith, but to give you kind of an example, any sports fans out there? Any sports fans? All right. So we've got a lot of sports fans, even pickleball. If you like pickleball, that's a sport I hear. And I love pickleball. But as you know, I love, I love the game of golf. And so in the game of golf, we have the yips and the shanks, <laughs> the yips and the shanks. So, so the yips is like when you're, when you're over a putt and it's just a short little putt, it should be automatic. You have the, these yips where you just completely blank and you miss these short little putts. A shank is when you, 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 you approach the ball, you get ready and you swing and it hits the hosel and it goes immediately to the right. If you're left-handed, it goes immediately to uh, your, your left. Now... Here's the thing, if you play golf, you know that once you shank one ball, you're bound to shank another one, and another one, and another one. When you have the yips, you're bound to miss a lot of putts because you have completely lost confidence. If you play baseball, we call that a slump. If you write, we call that a writer's block. If you're about relationships and you put yourself out there and you get rejected, we call that rejection, <laughs> and you lose confidence. You like, man, I thought I had some game. No, you don't, you ain't got no game. You got rejected, sorry but you can lose confidence and it brings about a crisis, crisis of your golf game, a crisis of baseball, crisis in relationships. Well, we experience that with our faith. Now, here's what happens. When people experience a crisis of faith, they, they typically experience life situations and experiences that don't go their way or their faith is challenged in some way Maybe they learn something new about their faith's teaching that that they don't align with or they think or believe. And as a result of life situations or experiences, the challenge to what they think or believe, they enter into a crisis of faith. Like, for instance, something may have happened in your life that has brought about a crisis of faith. Maybe you got some health news. That brought about a crisis of faith. Maybe a tragedy happened in your life where you're questioning and doubting your faith and you're asking the question, how can a good God allow pain and suffering? Or maybe you've heard a teaching that doesn't mesh with what you want to do and a a preacher or a pastor has challenged your idolatry in your life and you're like, oh, you got that crisis of faith. Uh, we, We are definitely living in a time where there's a lot of individuals experiencing a crisis of faith and they are deconstructing their faith. Anybody ever heard of that, that idea of deconstructing your faith? It, it, it's out all over the place. And let me just, let me just tell you my concern. First of all, like, I don't think there's any problem with us working out our faith, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. The Apostle Paul tells us to do that. But here's what I think is happening in our culture, particularly in the church, in this deconstructing of their uh, of faith. It's typically coming from the younger generation because what I would uh, uh, imagine is that they have looked at the older generation, they've looked at their parents and their grandparents and their faith and the exercise of their faith and they're like, that, that's not what I see in the Bible. And, and so what they'll do is that I'm gonna deconstruct this faith But but here's the danger. Here's my concern. They are reconstructing their faith, not really according to the Bible, but according to what they want, what makes them happy, and what makes them feel good. And so what they're doing is the very same thing that their parents and grandparents have done, and it's hypocritical. So I'm all for, in some sense, deconstructing your, your, your faith, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just make sure that what you are reconstructing is actually the faith that Jesus wants you to construct. Or maybe corporately, here's what I know, that happens when a church gets a new pastor or the church begins to move in a new direction, things change, stylistically, methodologically, and practically, and those changes in styles and methods and practices are different than what people may be accustomed to, what they prefer or what they like, and it threatens the way that they practice their faith, thus they have a crisis of faith. So, so I don't know where you, might, you may be this morning. I don't know where you are online in terms of a crisis of faith, but here's what I definitely know. At some point, we will all experience a crisis of faith, and here's the main point that I want to flesh out for the remainder of our time. And so, if you're ready, tell your neighbor you're ready. And if you're engaging with us online, just say, hey, type in the chat, I'm ready. And here, here it is. Here's the main point. To process a crisis of faith, you'll need to, I'll need to, will need to return to the ABCs of the Christian faith. So when you experience a crisis of faith, we're going to have to process that crisis by returning to the ABCs of the Christian faith. And that's what we actually see in the life of Peter. So will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? So, So here's the scene. The disciples are there with Jesus in the upper room. They've just had the Last Supper. And here's what Jesus turns and says to Peter, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Just let that that marinate. Satan has come to Jesus and says, I want to sift all of your disciples like wheat. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you, Simon, Simon. By name, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. Where? Where is he ready to go? Prison. And to? Okay, all right, Peter. Mm -hmm. Verse 34. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, (laughs) before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me. How many times? Not one, not two, but three that you even know me. Father, may we learn about a crisis of faith and how we can process that crisis of faith by returning to the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at three things about a crisis of faith. We're gonna look at these three things. Who wants to shake our faith and bring about a crisis of faith? Who wants to sanctify our faith and bring calmness to our faith? And how do we transition through and during a crisis of faith? So let me tackle number one. Who wants to shake our faith and bring about a crisis of faith? Well, we see that in verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Church, we do realize since the days of the garden, Satan has been trying to bring about a crisis of faith for every follower of God. Now, Satan asked Jesus to sift all of his disciples like wheat. That word sift is very interesting. It means literally to shake you violently. So that's what Satan wants to do to the followers of Jesus is to shake them violently. Now, the process of sifting, now I'm I'm no farmer, although I did grow up on my granddaddy's farm, but but even then, I'm, I'm not a farmer, so... So when I, when I was reading about what a what sifting look like, so they would pick the wheat and then they would, they would take the wheat and they would put it out on the, kind of the, the threshing floor and then they would go around beating the wheat, loosening up the wheat on the floor. And then after they have beat the wheat and they've loosened it up, they would take the pitchfork and then they would begin to uh, scoop up the wheat. They would throw it in the air and as they throw it in the air, the chaff would be blown away by the gentle wind the wheat would actually fall to the ground. And so what is Satan sifting? He's actually sifting their faith. We see that in verse 32 when Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So Satan wants to shake their faith violently to see if there is any substance to their faith. I want you to let that sink in. Now let's talk about faith for a second. Because I do believe that we are in a day and age where we need to define our terms any chance we get. Because I'm sure we walk around a lot just throwing out the word faith. Well, I have faith in Jesus. Well, I, I have faith in the Tampa, uh, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. I have faith in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, whatever it may be, we throw that out. But what do you mean when you say you have faith? Well, here it is. According to the Bible, here's the definition of faith. To have confidence, to believe in, To trust in, to be committed to. So what is faith when it comes to the Christian faith? To have confidence in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to be committed to Jesus. That is faith. Now... Here's something that is so interesting when when it comes to faith. There's actually five components or elements to faith, and let me write them on the board. The first component is a worldview. It's how you see the world. It's how you frame out the world. It's how you peer into the world and make sense of the world. When it comes to a worldview, there are at least five big buckets to a worldview. You can have a naturalistic worldview, where it's kind of rude, that's where atheism, agnosticism, agnosticism, existentialism is rooted in. Natural law is God and governs the earth and the universe. Science is working out your faith, seeking understanding. Uh, Another big bucket of a worldview is pantheism. Uh, anybody ever seen star wars oh yeah yeah. star wars fans yeah hey that that's an that's an example of pantheism where the universe is god and you got to tap into the god of the universe for either good or evil then you have polytheism polytheism is the worship of many gods and so like hinduism will be an example of this and so they have a god for everything postmodernism that that would be a big worldview bucket that basically says uh it is is what i think what i feel i'm my own truth so that's why when you hear people say do you that's a postmodern hey you just do you man whatever whatever makes you happy whatever makes you feel good you do you that's how you framed out the world that's how you look at the world because you're the center of the universe and then you have theism Theism is the last big bucket of a worldview, and that's where you have Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So you have a worldview as the first element, then you have an object of that worldview. So once you have a way of looking at the world, now you have an object of that worldview. Now let me just take the theistic worldview, for instance. So When it comes to the object of a theistic worldview, let me just say it this way, is if you have a worldview where mankind works his way to God, works his way to salvation, the object of that worldview is not God, it's you. That's why the Christian faith is different. Because the object of our worldview actually did the work for us where we don't have to work our way to God He came down. That's why we celebrate Easter That's why I was so jacked up for Easter is because God worked his way down He did all of the work and now I put my confidence and belief in him and all of my life orbits around King Jesus He is the object But if you have a faith in a worldview that says you have to work yourself to God, you are no law you, You are the center of your own worldview And then we have worldview, object, and then the purpose of that object. So that's your mission in the world. So whatever, so the object sets the purpose. The object sets the mission. And so now you get up every day and that's your mission. You get up every day and that's your purpose. See, in a postmodern worldview, when you get up, guess what your purpose is? To make you happy. And see, now we live in a culture where everybody wants to be made happy. Everybody there is their their own individual. That's why at some point it will become an anarchy because everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. Anyways, that was free. And and, and so, (laughs) and then you have your pattern. That's your ethics. Ethics. Because again, your purpose, your mission sets the pattern and the ethics of your life. It sets what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, and then you have your expressions. That's, That's how you express your faith, that's how you worship. Your faith it tells you when you worship where you worship how you worship the methods the styles and the environments of expressing your faith and so what Satan is sifting is that is all of that and he's shaking violently to see where their faith actually is now can I just say it this way too Uh, here's a good principle The closer you are to Jesus, the greater the threat you are to Satan. (laughs) The closer you are to Jesus, the greater the threat you are to Satan. Hey, Church Northland, hey, listen, God's not done with us. Man, He's got a purpose. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna press into that purpose and that promise. But I promise you, a church that is fu- I mean fulfilling the purpose and the mission of God, they are a threat to Satan, and he will sift us. That's why we're doing this series, because I want you to know the sifting is coming. The sifting, the shaking violently is coming. Now, when I think about what Satan uses to shake one's faith, I think of the last two years. You have the pandemic, you have disease, death, you have economic instability and inflation, you have a rise in mental illness and anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. You have political and racial division and tension, and it has spilled over into the church. There's definitely been a shaking and a crisis of faith within Christianity. I mean, Lord have mercy. When you have people leaving the church, not over sound theology, but political policy, God help us. That is a shaking of the faith right there. He also uses pain and suffering, loss of confidence, friction and instability, trying and difficult situations. Let me ask, church, how, how's your faith? How's your faith? Is there some substance there, or is it just chat? So who wants to shake our faith? That's Satan. But number two is this, who wants to sanctify our faith and calm the crisis of faith? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we see that in verse 32. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Now, I, just, Satan has to get Jesus's permission to sift us. And Jesus is actually going to let him sift us. Let that sink in. Now, on one hand, Satan's goal was to sift and to shake that they might fall away. But Jesus's goal was to shepherd and to sanctify that they might solidify their faith. See, Jesus, he, he's all about saying, hey, yeah, go ahead and shake them. Just like Job, go ahead and shake him. Because there's something there. And hey, that's the thing, hey, when we are on mission, listen, there will be friction. When we are on mission, there will be sifting, why? Because there's something to our faith. And so, so that, that's what he wants. Like God, God wants us to, to be shepherded and, and sanctified through the sifting. Now, when we come to, when we come to Christ in faith, we, we don't enter fully developed, do we? Like, like, so Luke, he's our 10-year-old, and. Uh, he, he's the cutest thing because he thinks he's the best at baseball. And I'm like, <laughs> buddy, uh, listen, you're growing and I'm loving that. But, but bro, you got a lot, you got a lot of work to do, but he thinks he's, he's far ahead of where he really is. Listen, when, when you come in, when you come to faith in Christ, listen, you, you're on the recreation team. Like you're not a pro like, sanctification is the process of being more conformed into the image of Jesus. And so you enter into uh, to, to faith and you follow Jesus. Like, you're just on the recreation team. You're not even an amateur yet. So you got to go from the recreation to the amateur. Then you can get into the semi-pro. Then you might get, become a pro. Then you might become a master. Like, I, you know, like there's a process. And say, so here's the thing about Peter. He thought he was further along than what he was. You know how I know that? Well, look in verse 33. Here's what he says. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to what? Prison and to death. Peter is confident in his faith. Well, so let's use the faith framework for Peter. Let's look at his worldview. He was a Jew, so he had a theistic worldview. He believed that God created the heavens and the earth. He believed that mankind had sinned, Adam and Eve had sinned. He believed that God is going to call a man by the name of Abraham to create a people for himself to bring his kingdom to planet earth. That's his worldview. Now in that worldview, the object of this worldview, according to the Old Testament scriptures, is that a Messiah would come and institute God's kingdom on planet earth. And so Peter actually thought Jesus was the Messiah. Like so in John six, Peter exclaims this, you Jesus have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy one of God. Matthew 16, Peter says, you are the Christ Jesus, the son of the living God. So far so good. But what we will see is that Peter's faith actually had to be refined because where Peter thought he was, Jesus knew that's not where he was. And so let's see, let's see how Jesus is going to refine the totality of his faith because Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. So let's look at how that transpires. So they are dismissed from the upper room. Now they're headed to the Mount of Olives. Uh, there when they get to the mount of olives uh, jesus has peter and a few of the disciples stay here and he tells them to do what watch and pray he's going to go and be alone with the father and pray he comes back and dally peter and a couple other disciples took benadryl and melatonin because they're they're fast asleep uh, they, they, they fell asleep praying jesus like what are you guys doing sleeping get up watch and pray and then he goes back he prays with the father comes back sees them sleeping Well, then what you have is Judas and the authorities now come to the Mount of Olives. Judas delivers the kiss of death to Jesus and the crowd moves in to arrest him. Now, as this is happening so fast, one of the disciples asks, should we strike with our swords? Now, before Jesus even utters the answer, guess what Peter does? He takes out his little play sword and he starts wielding it and he cuts off a man's ear. Peter had no idea what he was doing with that sword. You know how I know? Because he cut off a man's ear. He didn't. He didn't take, He didn't like look at Jesus like Jesus. Watch this, man. I'm gonna cut off this guy's ear in the dark. And he, you know, like the second didn't know how to use the sword, and so he cuts off an ear. And so you have these disciples wanting to wield the sword. Peter wields it and he cuts off an ear. You see, don't miss this. Peter was willing to go to prison and to die with Jesus. So as the ear lays on the ground, this is a pretty fascinating scene. As the ear lays on the ground, Jesus says, "No more of this." He bends down, picks up the ear, pops it right back on the guy's head, like Mr. Potato Head, and he walks away. Yeah. And Jesus willingly gives himself up to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard. He doesn't fight. He doesn't resist. He willingly gives himself up. At that point, all of the disciples flee except Peter. Now, as they haul Jesus off, as Jesus has been arrested, they haul him off and Peter follows at a distance. So you can kind of hear the Mission Impossible theme like, nah, 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 nah. like, you're trying to see what's going to happen. So they take Jesus into the house of the high priest. Uh, uh, Peter goes to the courtyard and sits by the fire. While he's sitting there roasting hot dogs and marshmallows, you have a servant girl that comes up to Peter and says, hey, this man, this man was with Jesus. And Peter's response was, I don't know him, woman. A little later... After he's full from the marshmallows and the hot dogs, another guy looks over to Peter and says, hey, you are also one of Jesus' disciples. Peter's response, man, I'm not. Leave me alone. About an hour later, into the wee hours of the night, someone else says, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter responds, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And in another gospel account, he swears by a curse that if I'm lying, may I be struck dead. One minute, Peter is wielding a sword, willing to die and go to prison. Now he's denying Jesus among people who are not even in authority. What happened? What changed? Well, you got to go back to the framework of faith in its totality. See... Peter thought, just like all of the Jews at that point, that the Messiah would come and conquer the Romans. That he would come by force and he would set everything right by force. Now he's in the garden and Jesus isn't doing anything by force. Jesus is not resisting, Jesus is not calling down a legion of angels. Jesus is willingly giving himself up. Now there is a crisis of faith in Peter's purpose of what he thinks the object of his faith should do. He had all of these expectations for Jesus. He had placed all of his expectations on the object of his faith. And now when the object of his faith didn't deliver, now he has a crisis of purpose. And that crisis of purpose led to his behavior where he is either destroying what he perceives as the enemy or lying to people to hide his identity. So he is now entered into a crisis of faith when it comes to his purpose and his pattern. But what is so amazing is that over and over Jesus taught him and others that the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The son of man came to serve, not to be served. The son of man came to give his life a ransom for many. He taught them that the kingdom of God is not of this world. I mean, and now Peter is actually getting a glimpse into the purpose and the pattern of Jesus's kingship and kingdom. That night, Peter had a crisis of faith. And see, when you have a crisis, when I have a crisis, we have five options. We can destroy who we perceive is the enemy. So that's, I, that's the reason why whenever you have a crisis of faith, something has changed in your life, something has not gone the way you want, you begin to destroy your opponent or who you perceive is your opponent or who you perceive is your enemy. The other option that you have is dessert. Now, I know we're getting into lunchtime, but it's not that dessert. So dessert, that, that's, that's what... That's what the other disciples did. They, they ran away, they fled. Things got hot in the kitchen. No, we, 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 gotta, we gotta get out, we, we need to desert. Then you had, you had some disciples that doubted. So you can just doubt, maybe, maybe you're confused. M- maybe you're wrestling with questions. Maybe you're not really certain, just like Thomas. Maybe you're doubting God's power, his goodness, his trustworthiness, his love, so you are stuck. Uh, the, the fourth option that you have is deny, and so you, you you deny the object of your faith. You deny the purpose. Like that's what we see with Peter when he's in the courtyard. See, see, today this is characterized by people who just want to make their faith a private matter. You do realize that faith is not a private matter. And I don't care what anybody says in the American government about your faith as a private matter. No, it's not. Whatever your worldview is, it comes to bear in every area of your life. It's also, in some cases, those in the deny mode might deny teachings of the Bible in order to be seen as more relevant or Progressive. So we just don't preach that. Number three, maybe you're acting out in in the deny mode. You're acting out because you are hurting, confused, mad, and so your actions deny the very thing that you believe. Which is why I love what Brendan Manning says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world is Christians who profess Jesus with their lips but deny him with their lives. See, the reason why people don't wanna go to church is really around this right here. Because Amer- you know Christians who live in America, they've made their purpose everything about reaching lost people. All right, you guys got quiet, but anyways, all right, I go, I go, yeah. I, oh, let, let me say it. Let me just go ahead. And say it. Listen, and I've said this in and other. And listen, I'm. This is who I am. All right, so you, you, you can deal with it. This is the processing of the transition, right? If American Christians have a purpose, an ultimate purpose that an Iranian Christian cannot have, we got the wrong purpose. Listen, I'm not saying that we 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 shouldn't. Uh, seek the common good. I'm not saying that we we should be salt and light. We, we should be all of that. But at the end of the day, we don't need to rail against progressive and Democrats. And if you're a Democrat or progressive, you don't rail against Republicans and conservatives because they don't meet your agenda. Why? Because your ultimate purpose is King Jesus and bringing his kingdom to planet Earth. All right, got that off my chest. Thank you very much. All right. All right. I, I, I keep getting a glimpse of how I'm freaking out the camera over here. <laughs> the, uh, the last option is die mode. See, this mode is characterized by humility, love, submission, surrender, and sacrifice. This is why Jesus calls his disciple, anyone who's willing to come after me must deny himself, pick up his cross, and then follow me. Listen, to follow Jesus, you have to die. You have to pick up your death sentence. And yes, it's hard. I'm telling you, it's hard. But when has following Jesus ever been easy? See, that's where I feel like we have missed the boat as as Christians in America. It's not easy to follow the king. See, Jesus embodies the purpose to which he came, to give his life for the world, to give his life for sinners, to bridge the gap between sinners and God, to reconcile those far from God, to redeem a people for himself, to inaugurate God's kingdom on planet Earth, and Jesus embodies the pattern, the ethics that comprise his kingship and his kingdom by this. To win, he lost. To love, he gave up. To save, he died. That's our pattern too. The, this purpose and pattern cannot be accomplished through fighting, through falling away, or through freezing your faith. And we have to exercise every muscle that comprises our faith structure. So maybe that helps to explain that the last couple of years, Jesus has allowed Satan to sift. His believers through the pandemic, through the deaths, through the restrictions, through the hardships, through the inconveniences, through the political tensions, through the progressive agenda of a secular culture, through pain and suffering. He's sifting us, but Jesus is solidifying us. And so maybe you find yourself where Peter did over 2,000 years ago. You're struggling with your purpose and your ethics. If your object of faith, In your eyes, nothing is going right. In this culture, you walk around with a chip on your shoulder, you're mad, you're angry, you're upset, you vent at every possible opportunity you have, you walk around defensive, you walk around destructive, maybe you're you're struggling with disappointment. Again, uh, Jesus, the object of your faith, didn't do what you thought he should. Maybe he took somebody, maybe he allowed somebody to die, Uh, maybe somebody in your family got, got a health issue, and so you're struggling with disappointment because God didn't show up the way you thought he should have, just like Peter maybe you're struggling with Jesus and teachings about uh the teachings that he has about sexuality and, and gender and marriage and so you find yourself constantly denying Jesus by your actions maybe you're struggling living out your faith in public and no one around you not your family members not your friends not your coworkers can tell something is different about you and maybe some of you here are you're online and you're struggling with church Maybe you're struggling with all the changes and transitions over the past few years. Maybe you are still hurt and grieved that a family that you loved or a pastor that you loved is no longer here, and you're struggling of what the church is now, but what it, but what, what it was. Uh, may, maybe you're struggling about the music. Maybe you're struggling about the new preacher. Maybe he's too loud. Maybe he doesn't wear a coat, and you're just mad and upset and destructive. It's Florida. Good night. Anyways, uh, and so you're mad and you're upset, and you're destructive with your words, And you're experiencing a crisis of faith. Expressions. Hey, you know, this is just only an expression. My style is just only an expression. Listen, I don't want Pastor Gus. I don't want Pastor Rob. I don't want Pastor John. I don't want them to preach. I want them to preach like God's made them. Like I love Pastor Joel. Got to have coffee with him. I want God to use Pastor Joel as, as Pastor Joel. I'm Pastor Josh, and this is my expression. And so, if you have a crisis of faith over expression, you need to take it to Jesus, not begin to take it to Twitter and Facebook. I'm just, gosh, I'm just I'm on fire today. This is. Uh, I am broken, and not just, I mean, again, this isn't Northland. I mean, I've been a part of of many churches over the last few years. I am broken that anybody who claims the name of Jesus can take to Facebook and Twitter and spew nothing but garbage and demean the bride of Christ. Listen, you got a crisis of faith, and again, you need to take that to Jesus, not taking it to the public and airing your dirty laundry for the world. There is something in this cup, by the way, and it's just water, I promise. Um, all right, let me, let me finish, let me finish. Number three, everybody all right? Yeah. Have I told you that I loved you lately? I do. That's the reason why I'm gonna preach truth. I, I, I love you. I love you too much to, to tickle your ears up here. Um, so how do you transition through or during a crisis? Well, don't, don't miss this. Jesus prayed for Peter's faith. See, Peter's faith may have, may have taken a fall, but Jesus didn't let it fail. Hey, hey, hey! Ooh, ooh. the object of your faith, if you, if, you, if you know it, if you know it, he might let you fall. Like his parents, when we have little babies and they're trying to walk, they're, they're going to fall. But ooh, 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 we're not going to let them fail. They ain't going to stay down on that ground, right? No, no, no. We will come down as a parent. We're going to pick them up. We're going to love them. And that's exactly what Jesus did with Peter. So, so he knew, he, he knew both the heart and mind of Peter. His heart was true, even though his mind needed to catch up. And so, so when, when you are in a crisis of faith and you need to transition through and during that crisis of faith, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do, you, what do you do? What do I do? What do we do? You got to go back to the ABCs of faith. You ready? You ready? Let's go, let's, let's go back to elementary school. Here it is. Affirm your love for Jesus. Like when, you, when you're experiencing a crisis of faith, affirm your love for Jesus, Like I love Jesus. See, when 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 Jesus rose from the dead, he comes to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, and he says, "Do you love me?" Peter's like, "You know I love you." Do you love me, Jesus? You know all things. You know I love you. The third time, matching how many times he denied Jesus. Matching, do you love me? See, see, when you have a crisis faith, just go back to affirm your love for Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? And then the second thing, be broken over the condition of the world and of your sin. Now, I'm not saying that every crisis of faith is a result of your sin, but what I'm getting at here is that we need to lament of living in a broken world. Maybe you lost a family member. Maybe you lost a child, and God didn't show up. He didn't show up the way you thought he did. Listen, lament over the brokenness of the world and how Jesus is in the process of making all things new. So we're we're going to affirm our love for Jesus. We're going to be broken. The the third thing to see is we're going to care about those who Jesus cares about. You see, when Jesus tells Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Jesus. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. See, what, what Jesus is telling Peter, what he's telling us in a crisis of faith, you need to get back to doing what God has called us to do. And it's not about us. It's about him and others. And so he's, he's going to go to work serving the church and reaching people far from Christ. And then the fourth is this, die to yourself. Die to yourself. See, Peter, what we see in John 21, he would die a death that even Jesus didn't die See, in John 21, Jesus actually predicts Peter's death. When when you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wished, but when you get old, you'll have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. He said this to hint at the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Church tradition tells us that Peter exclaimed that he was not worthy to die the death that Jesus did, so he wanted to be crucified upside down. He was willing to die. Listen, that is, that, that is the ultimate, listen, that is the ultimate sign for a follower of Jesus is that we're willing to die, that others might live. We're, we're willing to give up our life so that God might do something. And so any, any crisis that we would face, to process that crisis, we've got to go back to the ABCs of our Christian faith. Hey, church, there's sifting coming. And we've got to process that sifting by affirming, by being broken, by caring, and by dying because that's what God that's what Jesus would use in Peter's life and the rest of his disciples to go and turn the world upside down let's pray Jesus may we be that people that any crisis of faith that we ever experience that we would process that crisis through the ABCs of the Christian faith I pray that you would solidify and strengthen Northland to do far more abundantly in and through us than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Will you blow our ever-loving minds away because we have yielded to you in every season and in every change. For it's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen.